Okay, so I have uh, just a couple of announcements, and uh, I'm going to start with this one right here. Paul and Elaine, please walk forward. Oh, uh, this is just wonderful. I got to tell you, we've been praying for these two people for the past year. And I just want anybody on YouTube to be able to see your faces because uh, people on YouTube have heard you mentioned every single week, week after week after week. And uh, this is Paul and Elaine Stoll, who this little church have been supporting for the past year. And as when I say supporting, other churches have helped them as well. But uh, uh, we've been supporting them with a little offering and with prayers and uh, with our hearts for the past year and a half when they went to serve in Japan. And uh, they... They did, I can assure you, I got his monthly newsletter and uh, some notes from Elaine, and they did great things, great things, and people came to know Jesus Christ through them, which in Japan is, I've spent six years there, I'm married to a Japanese, and I can tell you how isolated that society is, and yet they had people come to the Lord through their ministry, and other people were built up in uh, the knowledge of uh, the Bible, it's just wonderful things, so my hat is off to you, and my heart is out to you. And I can only thank you for your service to the Lord. Praise God Amen. for that. All right. Amen. <laughs> Come here, give me one big hug. There you go. It's so good to have you guys back. Praise God. All right. Thank you so much for your wonderful time there. And uh, what we're going to do here, um, this is my next announcement. When we get a building, which uh, I signed a contract for a building uh, Wednesday, and we should uh, close hopefully on the 31st. If we do, when we get a building, I would like to set up a day where you can actually just speak to people and uh, just uh, tell them what you did. And would, would you be willing to do that? All right. You know, figure that in a month or so. I mean, whenever we get things painted and all the cl things cleaned up and there's a lot of work to be done. And uh, uh, but that uh, brings me to my next thing that I want to say. And uh, I was talking to a couple uh, of people out on the beach a second ago, but um uh, this pertains to people on YouTube as well. And so I may actually say this right before the sermon because I do edit things and take things out from time to time. But um, over the past eight years, I, uh, I have a website that I've maintained and I've um, uh, uh, done a daily devotional that goes out around the world. And I uh, do an analysis of one verse at a time. And we now have an entire commentary on the New Testament. Uh, then I started again with um, Romans 1.1. I did not do the Gospels or Acts. But um, that's still going out each day, and um, every Saturday for about five years, I've gone out and done uh, mission work uh, just down in the projects, and that's something that I try never to miss. And then, of course, we've had church on the beach, and people have offered money over here, and if they haven't, I've never asked for it. And um, people on YouTube and also people that have received the devotionals and the other things that I do— have offered money over the years. And I've always told them, please, that's not necessary. We have no bills. We're out here. And plus, you know, uh, the things that I do are an offering to the Lord. But I will say now, and this is very hard for me to say, is that uh, from this point forward, I would accept donations from anybody on YouTube that wants to donate. And if you don't, I am not asking. I, I am not asking for donations, but if somebody offers, I will accept because um, uh, we have a building that you know, it's going to cost money. And then, of course, you have insurance. You've got uh, monthly bills. You've got um, uh, taxes. And I figured it out this morning in my head. And it's probably going to be about 10000 a year plus the initial investment. And uh, then, of course, my wife is uh, at retirement age. And um, so she supported me for the past 10 years from my time going through the uh, ministry, through the ordination process and everything else. And I'm hoping she will be able to retire. But that will not be possible 
unless we build a congregation that meets weekly and is is able to give. So I'm not asking, but I am saying that if people want to offer, I will accept in the future. Um, that brings me to another point is that, and most people here know this, um, I'm always looking for inviters of others. And at least in the short term, I don't want to establish a church in the traditional sense. I want it, this building is out of the way. It's uh, advertising with a bulletin board or something would do no good at all. But if we can uh, invite people there and to uh, set up a congregation, I'd like it to, at least in the short time, uh, continue on as we've gone so far. And whenever the people of the church want to incorporate and actually start a nonprofit organization and all that, that would be a congregational decision. I don't want to be the one to say, well, we need to do this. I'm Right now, I'm fully content with the way things are going. And uh, until people have come together long enough to make a decision like that, that'll be your decision. If you say, hey, we like the way things are going at, you know, throughout uh, our meeting days, then that'll be fine. But um, that's just something for you to know. And if anybody wants to know where this building is, it's right over the bridge, just right off the key and down about two blocks. It's on Reynolds Street. And um, uh, if you want to know where that is, you go down about two blocks on 41, and on the east side of 41, there's Toll Brothers Funeral Home. And uh, it is about four houses behind there on a little dead-end street. And I've said this before, and I will make it a, a regular part of what I have to say, is that the good thing about being behind a funeral home is if I bore you to death, we can just carry you over to have you processed. So keep that in mind, as it's a very good location for that. And, um, and we are at Turtle Beach, and uh, as I say week after week, we have water over here. If anybody ever wants to be baptized, I'm ready to do that any day of the week. And um, at some point, we will have to start planning baptisms and saying, well, you know, we'll do a baptism, you know, whenever you want, but it has to be planned in advance. But right now, if you want to get baptized this morning, I'll take you out there and do it. It makes no difference to me. And um, all right, one more announcement. This is our 58th sermon from the book of Genesis. And uh, we're in Genesis 26, so I figure it'll be about, a, you know, maybe 100 and 120 sermons by the time we get done with it. But um, that's where we're at is our 58th uh, sermon in Genesis. And um, so we'll get into right now a New Testament reading, which um, sometimes I don't do one. Sometimes I do just based on the length of the sermon. Uh, this week we will do one, and it's Romans 11, 1 through 12. We stopped off at uh, Romans 10, 21 last time. So Romans 11. Romans 9 through 11, as I've said before, is Paul's discourse on the state of the Jewish people. Are they in? Are they out? What, will they ever be back in? Etc. And so he's going to complete his thoughts in Romans 11. But we won't finish the chapter today, but we'll get a little bit of information about it. I say then, has God cast away his people? And when he says his people, he's speaking about Israel, the Jewish people. He's not speaking about the church or anybody else. His people. All right. Certainly not, he says. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, he's making a, a claim that he's from Abraham, who was the first uh, of the circumcision, and then eventually that was codified in the law of Moses. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he said this in several other places as well. Benjamin was one of the great tribes of Israel. It was a tribe that uh, fell away from the Lord at the end of the book of Judges. is a very, very appalling story of something that happened, which is similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, the people of Benjamin would not release the people that committed this perverted crime. And uh, so Israel came against them and they were reduced down to 600 people out of the 20 or 30,000 that were uh, originally came across the Jordan and then grew after that. They were reduced to 600 people. 
and uh, uh, there was a covenant made that nobody would give their daughter to the people of Benjamin because of what they had done. And when they realized the, the error of their ways, that they had cut off a tribe from Israel, they came up with a innovative way of getting wives for these people, but there was still a gap of 200 wives. And so they came up with another innovative way of getting wives for the last 200. But this is a tribe that had a, a history of being almost annihilated. And then from them came the first king of Israel, the great King Saul, uh, who was replaced, of course, by David. But Benjamin also sided with um, David against their own king, Saul, when David um, was, uh, uh, you know, uh, being prepared to become the king of Israel. So they have this long and great history in Benjamin. And so he's making a, 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 not a prideful claim, but a, a claim that I am of this stock of people. Anyway, um, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Elijah had some trials and he pled with the Lord against the people of Israel. And here's what he said. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Elijah thought that he was the last, last guy that was standing up for the Lord when in fact it says verse four, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Elijah was unaware that there were actually 7,000 people that were faithful and not Baal worshipers in uh, the land of Israel at the time. He says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And what this means is that there are a certain number of Israelites that are saved believers in Jesus Christ according to God's grace. He will never cut off Israel. He promised that he will preserve a remnant from every tribe of Israel. And these are people that have come to Jesus Christ. And this has continued on throughout the years. Uh, Jewish people, if you go to churches around America, I don't care what, what denomination you go to, and you say, is anybody here Jewish? You'll get about one to 3% of the people that will raise their hand, they'll say, yes, we're Jewish. And um, that's, that's just the way it is. God has always called their hearts to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We had one that attended here for a long time until he moved to Atlanta. But um, he's saying that there is a remnant and he is not speaking about the church. He's speaking about the Jewish people. He goes on, um, Verse six, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Going back to the law, he's been talking about the law and how it's against the uh, doctrine of grace. He says, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. All right, he's making a distinction between what is God's grace and what is works. Works naturally come after saving faith. They don't precede it. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to please an infinitely righteous God when we already have to deal with our sin debt. We, that needs to be taken care of first. And after that, our works need to be works of faith. If we don't have faith in what we're doing, then all we're doing is spinning our wheels. So uh, it's uh, of no longer work. Verse seven, what then, he asks, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. They've been seeking you know, God's favor, but they've been doing it through works of the law and they can't obtain it that way. It says, and the rest were blinded. Verse eight, well, here's a question. I, I like to, uh, people always like to say that the Jews are out. Uh, if there is a mirror and you're blinded and you can't see through that mirror, what does that mean about the people standing on the other side of the mirror? They can't see as well. It's, it's, uh, it's opaque and you can't see either way. So that we have not seen what God has been doing in history and what he has reserved for the Jewish people in the future. We've been conducting church business for the past 2,000 years while they were under punishment. And all, all of a sudden in the 
uh, 1900s, people started to realize, you know, we've been misreading this. Yes, because God is now starting to open our minds to understand that God is going to restore Israel. And so people like John Darby started to say, you know, the Jewish people actually belong in the land of Israel, and God must be doing something different. A guy named E.W. Bollinger, it's, you can read it right online, The Witness of the Stars and Numbers in Scripture. He, he, all of his works are online at philologus.com. He um, uh, wrote, before it happened, the amount of time that Israel would be under punishment before they were reestablished as a nation. And you can do the calculation very easily, and you can see that what he said would happen actually happened. He did not know the starting date, though, so he had no idea when they would be restored. But in fact, they were restored exactly as he knew just by picking up his Bible and reading it. So, uh, and I'm going to talk about that today. And that's going to be the subject of the sermon. It's exactly what we're talking about, reestablished Israel and how it is prefigured in chapter 26 of Genesis. Anyway, verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. What he says is David says this. David is speaking about his own people, the Jewish people, falling into this snare and into this trap because they are not willing to open their eyes and see who Jesus Christ is. He says, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. And I'll finish up with verse 11 today. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Important words to understand. But through their fall, to provide them, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The Jewish people were in. They rejected Christ. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And now we, our job is to provoke them to jealousy, to bring them back to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Because Jesus, by his own mouth, says he is returning to Jerusalem, the seat of power in Israel, and to his own people. Okay, so there's there's no doubt about this. God has put all under, bound all under disobedience so that he can have mercy on us all. And right now, or in the past, they have been under God's wrath because of rejecting him. And I'll really quickly explain this. God says that you will be in exile. Okay, he said this to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter, chapter four, and he tells them how long they're gonna be in exile. And it's, he is assigned to Israel, lay on your side for 40 days and then lay on your other side for 390 days. He says, you will be assigned to Israel that they will be under punishment a day for a year. Well, everybody knows from the Bible and also extra biblical history that Israel was under punishment for 70 years when they were exiled to Babylon. As a matter of fact, Daniel picked up the scripture of Jeremiah and said, Lord, your word says 70 years. He started praying for them to be returned back to the land. Well, you take 70 from uh, uh, 430, because 40 on one side and 390 on the other is 430 years. Take 70 from that, you come to 360. All right, a biblical year, and if you want to talk about this afterward, we can do it. A biblical year is 360 days. It's not 364, 365, or any of these Gregorian or Julian calendars. It's a 360-day year, and this you can substantiate that from both testaments of the old uh, of the Bible. But um, there you have 360 days of punishment, which means they have 360 years of punishment left based on Ezekiel being assigned. But there's a problem because uh, God said in Leviticus chapter 26, if you don't obey the first time, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. And so you take 360, multiply times seven, and you get 2,520 years. And that's what E.W. Bollinger posted back in the 18 or 1900s in his book. So 
you have um, 2,520 years. You go back to, I think it was 586 uh, BC at the fall of Jerusalem. You go forward 907,200 days, which is 2,520 years times 360 days in a year. Exactly, exactly, 907,200 days later on 14 May of 1948, um, Ben-Gurion flicked on a radio switch and he said, the state of Israel is reestablished, exactly as the Bible had predicted. And not only that, they called it Israel. When 10 minutes earlier, they were arguing at the table, what are we going to call this reestablished land? They had no idea. And so uh, the Bible has verified itself. And as a one more point before I get into other things, is that Judah began to fall at a certain point as recorded in the Bible. And there were three exiles of the people out of Judah into the land of Babylon. The last one occurred when the temple was destroyed 19 years later. So you have the fall of Jerusalem and then 19 years, I'm sorry, the fall of Judah. 19 years later, the puppet king Zedekiah uh, disobeyed. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in to destroy the uh, remaining people in Jerusalem and carry them exile. He destroyed the temple on the ninth of the month of Av, Tish Av. And at that time, which is recorded in the Bible and extra biblically, they were carried off. Well, interestingly enough, God doesn't leave anything to chance. It was 907,200 days from the initial fall of Ju uh, Judah until 1 May of 1948. In the exact same amount of time from the destruction of the temple to the reestablishment of Jerusalem when they recaptured it on 6 June of 1997, I'm sorry, 7 June of 1997, was 19 years from May 4th, uh, I'm sorry, 14 May of 1948 until uh, they recaptured Jerusalem. And that's the same 19 years that the Bible records. So it's the exact same time frame. So God is perfect in what he's done, bringing the Jewish people back into the land. And we are seeing the fulfillment of that in our lifetime. That's what we'll be talking about from Genesis 26 today, which I believe perfectly pictures what is going on in the world today. You're not going to see it fully today. You'll have to uh, see the next week's sermon to uh, grasp what is going on. But this is um, uh, what's happening right here. All right. Um, I'd like to say, I mentioned this, I think, a couple weeks ago, and I'll say it again. Now that we have a building, um, anybody that knows how to sing or play an instrument or anything, you're more than welcome to uh, step in. I'm, I've been reading these forever, and we had a lady that wanted to read the Psalms for a while, and uh, uh, she uh, isn't at the beach anymore, but... Um, uh, anybody that wants to participate in any way, uh, you're more than welcome to step forward. And I, I, I don't want it to be a one-man show. I'd like to see people uh, coming together and maybe planning things for the community or uh, uh, joining me on uh, mission work once in a while. And uh, I can tell you that the mission work that we do on uh, Saturday morning can be a little brutal. And uh, most people come out. Paul's been out there. Um, they, they uh, you know, come out and they come out maybe once a year. And that's fine. Uh, the, the thing about doing mission work in inner city areas is consistency. If people don't show up, there is no trust. And there are people literally that would not look at us. They wouldn't speak to us for over a year. And now they come to us, they see us, and they walk right up and say, we need prayer today. And uh, I've been there when people have been shot the night before. One guy came out covered in blood, and he had a bullet through his hand and a bullet in his back, and the girl next to him died. And uh, that happened this past year. And uh, these people need consistency in their lives and uh, that guy went from a guy that didn't believe anything to somebody that literally walks up to us week after week and asks for prayer and uh, so uh, just need to be consistent but that's not to say that each person needs to be consistent if you want to come anytime just let me know and we'll go out there or if you have anything else that you think 
would be good for establishing a uh, ministry, uh, you know, out of this building that we're moving into, please feel free to let me know and we'll, we'll, we'll get it going. I'm just, I, I am not an initiator. Anybody that knows me knows that I am not an initiator. Coming out to church on the beach actually took other people to prompt me to do it. And uh, the building that we're going into now is, is just a building. And if it's left up to me, that's all it'll ever be. But with other people and other uh, voices and understandings of uh, people's needs, it can work into great things. I'm sure of that. Anyway, um, we'll go ahead and get into the sermon now. And I'm sorry for speaking so much before we get into it, but it's not a bad day. So it's uh, uh, actually pretty nice being out here. But um, we're going to do Genesis 26, 1 through 14 today. And we'll finish Genesis 26 next week. This is called a famine in the land. And as I said, I honestly believe that this is pointing to things that are happening in our lifetime. And I I think that maybe by the end of the day, some of you will be able to clue into this. But by the end of next week, you will see it. I'm absolutely certain of it. Anyway, um, uh, before we do that, of course, it's 20 January. And I always like to give this day in history. So uh, in 1801, on 20 January, John Marshall was appointed Chief Justice of the United States of America. He was the fourth Chief Justice of the United States. And his court opinions, his, his early workings, laid the basis for American constitutional law, and it was what he contemplated that made the Supreme Court a co-equal branch of the government along with the legislative and executive. Eventually, that became a part of our Constitution based on this great man's uh, legal mind. Then in uh, 1841, on 20 January, the island of Hong Kong was ceded to Great Britain, and it returned to Chinese control in 1997. And I've got very fond memories of Hong Kong. I uh, went there a couple times. The first time I did, uh, I I got off the plane late at night, and I I just wanted to go visit the place. And uh, I had no hotel, and I was walking along, and about six young Chinese people came up to me, and they started talking because they want to meet foreigners. And uh, uh, they said, where are you staying? And I said, I'm not staying anywhere. It's already 11, and I figure I'll just walk around all night because I'm not going to find a hotel. And they said, no, come with us. And so um, uh, I probably could have gotten rolled. I mean, I had no <laughs> idea. But, but uh, uh, I, uh, they took me down the street, and they all went and bought a big piece of paper. And I thought, what are they doing? I thought maybe they're artists, you know. So they, uh, th- then they stopped over at some place, and they got something else. And then we all walked out to the end of this jetty. And they rolled out their paper, and we slept, slept the whole night out there on the jetty. And they told me what Hong Kong means and, you know, the history of the place. And uh, they had very broken English, but they were so excited to be able to tell people about their, their home. Here we are sleeping right out on the water. And uh, then when my brother came to visit me, where is he? He's here somewhere. Um, oh, there he is hiding. When he came to visit me in Japan, I, I wanted to surprise him, so I got him a trip down to Hong Kong with me. And kind of the same thing happened. We got off the plane, and we didn't have anywhere to stay, and... A guy told us, well, there's not much left. I mean, this time of day, it's all, almost all booked up. And he says, but we'll send you to a place. And we went back over towards the New Territory side. And we went up these creaky steps. And it got spookier and spookier. And we turned right around. And we walked out. We said, we're not staying there. So we went and got one of the only hotels left that had, uh, it was like a three, I, I'm sorry, five-star hotel. And all they had was like one of the expensive suites. And it was very expensive. And we didn't care. We just paid it, spent all of our money on this stupid hotel room. And the next day we had our finger up while we were drinking coffee. And it was it was really great. But uh, anyway, that was back in 1841 that the uh, Chinese ceded control of uh, Hong Kong. And then in uh, 1885, the roller coaster was patented by L.A. Thompson. 
and uh, I hate roller coasters. I, I've never been good at that. You know, my children love to go up on them, and I went up, uh, uh, no, he's not here today. My son's not here, but uh, I took him to Six Flags one time because he wanted to do, uh, see some friends in Georgia, and uh, man, I was on one, and I was weak the rest of the day. So, But anyway, I know a lot of people like roller coasters, so... And uh, two years later, in 1887, the Senate approved an agreement to lease Pearl Harbor as a naval base. And uh, that, uh, of course, was where uh, 7 June of, I'm sorry, 7 December of 1941, Pearl Harbor was uh, bombed. And that was brought us into the uh, Second World War and established us as a great nation. And uh, so anyway, there you go. That was 1887. And then in uh, 1942... Man, oh man, almost brings me to tears just thinking about it. Nazi officials held the Wannsee Conference, during which they arrived at their final solution. They called for exterminating Europe's Jews. And uh, I have said it a million times, and I will say it a million more times. I am a strong supporter of Israel. I am a supporter of the Jewish people, not their theology, not their rejection of Jesus, but because they are God's people. And they will be brought back to an understanding of who their God is. They will. It will happen. It says that Old Testament and New, that on that day, all Israel will be saved. But until it happens, they're going to go through many trials and many woes. But one of the very last prayers off my breath every single night is for the people in the land of Israel. They are God's people. And he is bringing them back home by the millions. And he is establishing them in this little land, the center of the nations. And I, if you disagree with me, I can't help you. I got to tell you, you just need to open your eyes and look. God doesn't make mistakes. Things don't happen arbitrarily in God's world. He controls all things, including the people of Israel and what they mean to him and what they mean to the world of the future when Christ rules the nations for a thousand years from the midst of his people. It says the law will go forth from Zion. Anyway, we'll go ahead and get into Genesis 26 today. And uh, as I said, I think, that, I think I said it's our 58th Genesis sermon. And uh, we'll start with one and go through verse 14. Uh, there was a famine in the land besides the famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you for you and your descend- for to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heavens. And I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. 
So the Philistines envied him. Today, we will see God directing things which will lead to the movement of Isaac and his company. We just read about it. We'll go through all these verses again. I believe that this move will set up a chain of events that look forward to things that will happen in the end times. And when I say the end times, I mean the things that are beginning to happen in the world right now. Many of these early Genesis stories are given to show us what will happen in the future. And we've all seen this in these past Genesis stories, how God is prefiguring something, whether it's Jesus or whether it's the church or even the Apostle Paul. We saw at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of these things are being prefigured so that we know what is going on. God is moving through and guiding redemptive history. Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes assure us that this is so. It says there, that which is has already been. And what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Now, that's the New King James Version, which I preach from. But the NIV, I believe, gets it a little more close. It says God will call the past to account. And that's important to remember what we're looking at today. God is going to call the past to account. God tells us that if we pay attention to the past, we can see where we are heading in the future. That's great stuff to me. Our text verse for today comes from the 33rd Psalm. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Whether in feast or in famine, the Lord is there for his people. In the end, even death cannot separate us from the goodness of Jesus Christ. The sure promises of the Bible will all be realized in those who love him and are called by him. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of the day is the promise of Abraham. The previous three sermons spoke of the death of Abraham, the conception and the birth of Jacob and Esau, and the selling of the birthright by Esau. These things, according to Genesis 25, verse 11, came about in the area of Be'er Lahai Roi. If you remember, that's where uh, Hagar, uh, Abraham and Sarah's maidservant fled to. After she became pregnant and Sarah started abusing her, she went down to the south and there was this land, Be'er Lahai Roi, which means the well of the one who lives and sees me. And that is where our account starts today. Verse one, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Once again, God is directing the course of human history and the story of himself and what he is doing. And he's using nature in order to do it. He directs a famine which is going to move Isaac, just as he did with Abraham many, many years earlier when he first arrived in the land of Canaan. And if you remember that in Canaan, he just gets out of there. God says, I'm going to take you to a land. I'll show you. He goes down there. All of a sudden there's a famine. It's like, you know, it, you got to wonder. But God is directing history and he's trying to teach us things as he does so. And so we read this in Genesis chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. This was about 100 years earlier and at the earliest stages of Abraham's time in Canaan. And what we should see here is that if the account notes the famine in the time of Abraham, then everything else about Abraham's life is noted as well. So we'll be able to make some parallels. We'll see things happening today that happened at just the same in the life of Abraham. But because of this, we will be able to see the similarities and also distinctions and to understand why God has included this story. In other words, it's not identical to the story that we'd seen before. We're to learn something new. 
one distinction comes up immediately. In the famine at Abraham's time, he moved to Egypt for relief. However, this famine now, Isaac moves to, from Be'er Lahai Ro'i to a place called Gerar. And we're going to see that in the continuation of verse 1, which says, And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Abraham moved into the same area later, after going to Egypt. But there are more similarities in the story as well, and we'll see those in the verses ahead. The main thing to keep asking ourselves is, why did God include this? It's not just a story, but it is a revelation of himself and what he is doing in history. On his journey south, Isaac went to the same land that Abraham lived for many years. Abimelech is the king of the Philistines, but this is probably not the same Abimelech that we saw back at Abraham's time. The name might be like Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's Abimelech, king of the Philistines. In other words, it's a title rather than a name. Gerar means lodging place. It's a place for a sojourner, and this is exactly what Isaac is doing there now. He is lodging and he's sojourning. Verse 2, then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Just as the Lord appeared to Abraham, he now appears to Isaac. Now, whether he showed up visibly in human form or whether it was in a vision or a dream is not mentioned. We see that in Abraham's time. Sometimes it's specifically mentioned and sometimes it's not. It doesn't matter. It is the Lord, meaning Jehovah. In other words, when you see God, it means one thing. When it says Jehovah, it means something else. All the different titles of God are given to help us understand what is happening. Jehovah is coming as the protector of the covenant and the director of the plan of salvation. So we know that this is something to do with the covenant of the people of God or the salvific purposes of God. This direction then is given specifically to fulfill his plans for humanity in the future and or to show us what will occur in the execution of that plan. Every detail of history is being guided towards his end goal. Because he tells Isaac not to go down to Egypt, it's telling us that that's probably what Isaac was thinking about doing in the first place, just as Abraham, his father, had when there was this hardship and this severe famine. There's hardship in Canaan, but there is food in Egypt. If you know that, the Nile River runs down through Egypt and the Nile Delta is almost always without a famine. We'll see later in the Bible that there's a very bad famine there, which even the Nile dries up. But normally, when there's famine everywhere else, the Nile Delta has plenty of food. But this time, the Lord's plan does not include a trip to the land of Pharaoh. Verse 3, dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. The Lord tells Isaac here to dwell in this land. And this could be taken of one of two ways. It could mean specifically the land of Canaan in general, dwell in this land, or it could be where he is at right now, in the land of the Philistines, a, a, a sub-portion of the land of Canaan. Either way, though, the result is the same. He says, I will be with you and bless you. Despite the famine, Isaac will not only survive, but he's going to be blessed. Isaac has no need to fear the difficult times where rain is lacking because the water he needs will be provided throughout the drought. And we're going to see this at the end of this sermon today and following through next week. What is going on? As the Geneva Bible says about this particular verse, God's providence always watches to direct the ways of his children. And I would like to assure you that if you've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God's providence is watching over you and he is directing your ways. And I know a few people here that are really, really, really struggling right now. 
you've got medical problems, you've got financial problems. And I, we don't have a lot of people here today. And I can tell you that I know that in this small congregation, there are some real hard times. And we need to understand that God is working those hard times out for our good and for his glory. He is watching over his chosen people. Isaac at the time, well, that led to the Messiah. The Messiah, we are now positionally in Christ if we've called on him as Lord and Savior. If you haven't, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Verse three continues. For to you and your descendants, I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. The Lord made promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he was told to move to Canaan. He made more promises in Genesis 13 when he separated from his nephew Lot. He made more promises in Genesis chapter 15 when they cut a covenant. If you remember, they cut the animals and the Lord, the fire and the smoking pot went through the pieces of the animals. He made more promises in Genesis chapter 17 when we had the covenant of circumcision. And then finally, he made more promises in Genesis chapter 22 when he was told to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and bind him and offer him there as a burnt offering. Out of all of these five times that he's made promises to them, he is referring to the one that came about at the binding of Isaac on Mount Moriah. At that time, and in the hearing of Isaac, we read this. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the oath that's being referred to and it will be repeated time and time and time and time again in the coming pages of the Bible. God will remind us of the fulfillment of this promise that's coming, but never again will God swear by himself in this manner. And so he reminds his people right here and all the way through the Bible of the vow that he made once for all time, as we see in the next verse, verse four. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Until I studied the Hebrew of this verse for this particular sermon, I always believed in a double fulfillment of it one for the people of Israel and one in the work of Jesus Christ. The reason is that the promise seems to have been fulfilled at the time of Nehemiah. He prayed these words to the Lord. He said, you also multiplied their children as of the stars of heaven, just as it says to Isaac here, and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess, just as it says here. So in the English, you'd think it's a fulfillment of it. It does seem to be that way, but in the Lord's words to Isaac is an unusual plural form. It says, I will give your descendants all these lands. And the term for lands is ha'aratzot. And it's mostly used to speak in the plural form of the surrounding nations around Canaan or even all of the nations of the world, not just Canaan itself, the lands of Canaan. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, it uses the ter this exact term to speak of all of the nations where the people of Israel were scattered until modern times. And this includes pretty much everywhere on earth because there have been Jews scattered every place on earth as they're being called now back into the land of Israel. If you go to the deepest parts of China, you will find the little synagogue there. If you go to Japan, which as I said, it's the most closed country in the universe. I, mean, I spent six years there and I'm married to a Japanese and I can assure you it's true. There's a little synagogue there. I mean, you will find them in Indonesia. You'll find Jewish people 
everywhere, South America, and it, this is what Ezekiel is speaking about. It is a plural term that's very unusual for this particular passage of Genesis, though. So this verse, then, I believe is speaking only of the blessings of Christ to all the nations of the world during the millennial kingdom and the messianic rule of Jesus from Jerusalem when all of the nations of the earth will be under his authority. This is the promise which is spoken of in the second Psalm where the Lord speaks prophetically to himself concerning the rule of the nations. It says there, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces with a potter's, like a potter's vessel. Verse five, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This reminds us of the man of faith, Abraham. But it also reminds us that he was obedient and diligent in exercising his faith through the keeping of the things that God had directed him. When his final great act of faith was over on Mount Moriah, the oath that God gave was given, and it should not be lost on any of us that it was given in the presence of Isaac, who was almost sacrificed. Now we have these many years later, the promise being repeated to him, just as he stands as the bearer of the line, which is going to lead to the Messiah. This must have been, imagine it, it must have been abundantly thrilling for him to hear this from the Lord. First daddy Abraham, and now me. I'm getting this promise that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through me. There is something here which might seem confusing, though, if you follow the life of Abraham. It says that Abraham obeyed the Lord's voice, meaning his word, and he kept his charge, meaning the things that he was to observe. And then it says that he uh, obeyed his commandments, statutes, and laws. But these weren't given to Abraham in order for him to receive the promise. If you remember back in those earlier promises, they came as promises and they were one-sided and they were unconditional. There was no, you will do this in order to get this. God just simply spoke and that's the way it was. What Isaac is being told is that Abraham is being commended for doing the things after the promise. Just as God made the promise from his fountain of grace, the confirmation of it proceeds from the same bubbling spring. And so Isaac should be even more ready and more willing to pursue the Lord's will. And that pertains to every one of us as well, because the Bible says you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. You are saved to good works. You don't do good works in order to be saved. And that's what we need to understand from this verse. When you are looking at Abraham, he looked at the stars in the heavens. God says, thus shall your descendants be. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him for righteousness. He was declared righteous and then received circumcision. He was declared righteous and then did his works. And that's what we need to remember is the fountain of God's grace calls us to him. And then we go out and we serve him as best we can in whatever way that we can. That leads us to our second thought today, which is nothing new under the sun. Verse six, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Well, there you go. It says, obey me just like my, your father Abraham obeyed me. First thing we read here is that Isaac dwelt in Gerar. It's an immediate note of obedience concerning him. The Lord told him to dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. And Isaac, listening to what the Lord had just said, determines to be just faithful like Abraham was. 
And so he's obedient. He's working out his faith in obedience. He was asked to dwell in the lodging place, which is Gerar, and he did. And this is something that God asks each and every one of us. He saves us not just to take us home to heaven. Remember, I've quoted this in the past as Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says that in him we are seated in the heavenly places. And yet we're not there. We are positionally in Christ and in heaven, but literally we are sitting here on earth. He doesn't take us home to heaven the moment we get saved, but he leaves us in this world. And he asks us to participate in the furtherance of the gospel. And while we are in this temporary lodging place as pilgrims, we are not to go to the land of sin. And Egypt in the Bible, we haven't gotten there yet, but you'll see it in the book of Exodus, is a picture of sin. It's a picture of chaos and bondage. It is the life of sin from which we are redeemed and what we are not to return to. This then is a picture right here, Isaac, of the faithful and obedient Christian who dwells in this temporary world, this place of sojourning, free from the life of sin. But that's just kind of a little application for our own lives. More specifically, I think that this is a picture of the people of Israel today. And this is gonna become clear soon. He is in the land in which he was told to live in and he has been promised to be blessed. Despite the assurance though, he does what Abraham did twice over 80 years ago. Verse seven, and the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife. Because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. So he's being faithful and living in the land, but he's not being real trusting at this point. This is usually thought of, and it should be considered as an intentional lie. Unlike Abraham, which I fully justified in the sermons where he did this, Abraham was not at guilt when he said these things. Abraham was merely withholding a portion of the truth because Sarah actually was his half-sister. Isaac, though, is deceivingly claiming the same about Rebekah. He does it for the same reason as Abraham did it about Sarah, though, because Rebekah is a real beauty. If this is in chronological order, following Genesis 25, Jacob and Esau are at least 15 years old, and they're probably much older. This means that they would be out doing their own thing. They might be in the camp with other people or even out in the fields attending to flocks. If the boys were around, then everybody would know immediately that Isaac is lying. So either this is not chronological or they have grown up, and I'd prefer the latter option. In an attempt to partially redeem Isaac, and this is something that I want to do because he's sitting here lying about his wife, I want to show you two other occasions in the Bible which demonstrate that what he says, what Isaac says, she is my sister, is actually an acceptable idiom, even if it's deception on his part. The word for sister in Hebrew is ahot, A-H-O-T, and it's used about a jillion times in the Bible. This particular form right here is ahoti. It's got an I on the end, and that shows possession, my sister. Ahoti is used exactly 18 times in the Bible, and a full third of its uses. Six times it is not speaking of a literal sister. It's speaking of something other than a literal sister. The first time is in the book of Proverbs and it's not even speaking about a human being. Listen to what it says. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, Ahoti, and call understanding your nearest kin. And then there are five more times 
that this word ahuti is used in a non-literal sense, and it's actually speaking of a spouse, exactly as Isaac is doing. And even more, all five are in the Song of Solomon, which is a book that pictures Christ and the church, just as Isaac and Rebecca, if you were here for those sermons, clearly pictured Christ and the church. So listen to the beautiful words from the Song of Songs. You have ravished my heart, my sister, Ahoti, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, Ahoti, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Well, that's describing my wife there. Anyway, <laughs> therefore, Ahoti can be and it is used as a familiar idiom. And therefore, although what Isaac is doing may be somewhat duplicious, it's actually acceptable from a biblical standpoint when speaking of a spouse or someone else as close to a spouse as a literal person. All right. I call my wife mom. I call her mom all the time. I also call her beauty. But when I speak directly to her, I call her mom. Now, she is a mom, but she's not my mom. And for all we know, Isaac may have called Rebecca Ahoti all the time. And the reason why is she was about 15 years old, probably, when she was taken from her home down to meet Isaac. And he was over 40 at the time. So he may have just called her sister to make her feel familiar and a welcome. We have no idea about that. But I'm just trying to get him to not look so unfavorable in your eyes at this point. Solomon called his beautiful Shulamite wife Ahoti. And so did Isaac, possibly. Verse 8. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. This is a very curious verse to consider because it's, it says that Isaac had been in Gerar for a very long time before Abimelech noticed that they were married. All right, whatever a long time is, and the word is yamim in Hebrew, so it can mean days, it can mean years. Nobody took the time to get them to know them well enough to determine that they were actually married. And nobody seemed to notice their boys with them either, which would have confirmed it as well. What's also unusual about this is it is the king himself who figures it out. However many people are in the land, it's the king who takes the time to look out his window and see that they are doing something together that only two married people would do, not a brother and a sister. Abimelech means father of the king. And in the past account with Abraham, I showed that I thought at that time he was a picture of God the Father. All right. I don't think he's a picture of God the Father in this particular account with Isaac, though. And we're going to see why next week. But I will say for now that I believe Isaac, who is married but not willing to acknowledge it, is a picture of the Jewish people living in the land of Israel prior to their reestablishment in 1948. At that time... They were outside of the covenant graces of God, just as Isaac is living outside of the truth, even though he's in the land that God told him to dwell in. This should become, and I mean this, it should become clear in the verses ahead, but I believe it is picturing a Jewish presence in the land of Israel prior to 1948. That brings us to our third thought today, a hedge of protection. Verse 9, then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. Now, the contrast is striking and it's ironic. What Isaac had kept hidden for a long time is responded to immediately. Abimelech is beside himself and for very good reason, as we're going to see in another verse. 
He has no doubt that Rebecca is Isaac's wife, and he wants to know what the deal is. Isaac responds honestly and right to the point, just as Abraham did in exactly the same situation in exactly the same place many long years earlier, that he might die on account of his wife. If he were to be killed because of Rebecca, then she'd be taken away anyway. So his thought is that either way, she's going to be harmed if somebody took her. So if he were alive, he could fight to retrieve her. But if they killed him first, then she would be a goner without a defender. It does show a lack of uh, faith in God's promises, though, on his part. But I wonder if you're seeing Israel at all yet. Now think of the Jews prior to the reestablishment of Israel. They were not united as a people or standing together as one, but they were merely residents in the land and often hiding the truth of who they were and what they represent in the world, particularly in the lands where they were dispersed. Verse 11, And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Now what's important here is that the Lord intervened before anything happened, just like he did with Abraham. If something did happen to either one of them, then the Philistines would have been in violation of the treaty that was cut back at Abraham's time about 80 years earlier and which is found in Genesis chapter 21. Here's why we come to this conclusion. Now, therefore, this is Abimelech speaking to Abraham. Swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land which you have dwelt. And it went through the entire thing. And we talked about how it was basically a lex talionis. What happens to you by one of us will happen to us by one of you, or God will oversee it. And we talked about that in detail. Abimelech asked for a treaty, and the treaty was cut between the two of them. It was binding on them. And I tell you that I believe that treaty is binding today, today in human history, just as it was back then. And at the time, he remembered the covenant because he was a man who had reverence for the word which they had agreed upon. If one of his people violated Isaac or Rebekah, they would have had the same punishment come upon them. As I said, the lex talionis. God is ever faithful to watch over the agreements of men which are made in his name. And I would like each person real quickly to just stop and think about the covenants they've made. Like marriage, if you've made a covenant in marriage, that is binding on you. If you make an oath, if you sign your name to a piece of paper that you're going to pay a certain amount of money for something, you are obligated to that. It may not have the Lord's name on it, but eventually it will when it goes to court and you put your hand on a Bible. And when you invoke his name, you are invoking the most sacred thing in the universe. And you need to be very, very careful about the oaths that you make. They are binding. This verse right here, and I believe this, is the point which we see in modern history where the ancient treaty is brought to mind once again. It is the reestablishment of Israel and the confirmation of who Israel is and their connection with the people of God, the bride. I'm sure of that. Let me read it to you again so you can kind of get a feel for this because it'll be explained more in the, the week ahead. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. This ancient treaty is being brought back to mind at the reestablishment of Israel. Verse 11, so Abimelech charged all of his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. The order is given by Abimelech to his entire kingdom. 
it is an order for protection of Isaac. God has ensured safety to Isaac and to his family, and he has placed a hedge of protection around them. At the reestablishment of Israel, God has likewise once again placed a hedge of protection around them. Nothing could be clearer in the world. Nothing. In 1948, in 1967, and in 1973, they won wars with impossible odds against them. And they are being readied, I am certain of this, for the great end time scenario which lies ahead of us. From the next three verses, we'll begin to look at Israel in today's world and begin to make connections which will set up the world of those end times. As I quoted earlier, that which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past, or as the NIV says it, God will call the past to account. Everything is going through a cycle, and God is showing us in the past what is going to come about so that we can be ready for these things. Verse 12, then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now, now that Isaac is living properly, if you see the sequence of these verses, he's acknowledging his wife openly and faithfully. Now we read in this verse, then Isaac sowed in the land. God has again favored Israel. From the time that they were reestablished, they have been blessed as no other people on earth. Their cows, believe it or not, produce more milk than our cows do. Their harvests are immense. The land is producing a hundredfold, I assure you, and the Lord has blessed them. The pattern of what was in Isaac is now in the land of Israel. Listen to what Isaiah says about Israel once they were brought back into the covenant graces of today and see how it fits with the verse we just looked at. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, speaking to the people of Israel, nor shall your land be any more termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah. That means my delight is in her. And your land, Beulah, it means married. Remember Isaac acknowledged that he's married and then he starts reaping this grain? It's the same thing. He goes on, and your land shall be married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Isaac has acknowledged Rebekah and God has once again delighted in Israel. The parallels are right there to be seen. Now that this has taken place, he reaps an inordinate amount during a time of famine. Remember, just a couple verses ago, it says there's famine in the land. And yet God promised to bless him. During a time of famine, he's reaping a hundredfold. Israel is also reaping from the same land, which was totally barren for 2,000 years. But I want you to know something. There is something that is hidden in this verse, which is a concept which is so deep and I mean that sincerely, we can't cover it minutely right now. It would take a real Bible study for us to sit down and go through this. I can only hint at what the Bible reveals. The term for he reaped a hundredfold is miah sharim. And the same root word, and basically the exact same spelling, is the word for barley, which is silrim. Barley is known as the crop of hairy ears because of its hairy appearance. The root of this word is cr, which is hair. Hair in the Bible indicates an awareness of things. As you do your study through the Bible, pay attention to hair. It means an awareness of what's going on. The goat, for example, is used in the book of Leviticus as the sin offering, and it's known as sa'ir. We have an awareness of sin in the hairy goat sin offering. In the book of Numbers, I think it's chapter 6, there's a person known as a Nazarite. This is someone who has made a vow or is consecrated to the Lord. 
during the time of that vow or the consecration, they were never to cut their hair. Samson was a Nazarite from birth, as was Samuel, the last judge of Israel. He was a Nazarite from birth, as was the last prophet of Israel, John the Baptist. He was a Nazarite from birth. Paul took a Nazarite vow, which is recorded in the book of Acts. The hair on their head is a reminder of their state, just as the hairy goat is a reminder of the sin in our lives. The barley harvest that Isaac is reaping, Miah Sharim, is a reminder of God's covenant to him. And the abundant blessing he received was because of his time living faithfully within that covenant. Yes, this is my wife. And that's why he's having this, this reaping. Now I want to know, are you seeing modern Israel in this? Despite their unfaithfulness, they have been returned to the land. They are now living in the land as promised by God throughout the entire Old Testament. It is the time of hair. It is the time of awareness. It is the time of the barley harvest. It's the time of the mighty reaping of grain. Like I said, this study is so deep that we could go on for hours and hours and hours. But be assured that what is being spoken of in Isaac is realized in the reestablishment of the land of Israel. And to see this truth, we're going to move on. Verse 13, then the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. And the man was great and he went on going on and was great until that he was exceeding great. It's simple repetition, which becomes forceful and it becomes magnificent to hear. It is simply an amazing thing to read in the Hebrew. Let me read it again. It's just beautiful to hear. This is Israel today. This is the blessings and the prospering, even until they have become very prosperous. Isaiah said these words over 2,700 years ago, which could not have been fulfilled at any other time in human history. It says, those who come, meaning the returnees of the people of Israel to the land, shall he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom in blood and fill the face of the world with fruit. It wasn't even possible until just recently. And you can go to any store around here and you can buy Israeli dates or you can buy persimmons or whatever else from Israel. I've been there and I can tell you, you go down the, uh, the roads in Israel and there are just banana trees here and mangoes here and there's just, there's just fruit everywhere and the stuff is getting shipped all over the world. Exactly as Isaiah would, said would happen. This was written at a time when it was not possible for it to happen, and yet it has come true in our lifetime. From Israel, fruit is found everywhere. And I mean not just literal fruit, but the fruit of their labors in every single way possible. They have flooded the world with the blessings of technology. You think technology is found in Silicon Valley only? You ought to see what comes out of Israel. Medicine, man, they, they invent more medicines for taking care of the world's ills than we can imagine food, sending it around, prosperity. They just, everything they touch blesses the world. And as always, as always in the world we live in, along with blessing and prosperity comes something else, comes something dark, something cold, something wicked, something sinister. It is something that inevitably ruins everything it touches. Verse 14, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Isaac inherited all that Abraham had. Now he has even more. 
He's grown to the point that he is the greatest man in the land. Israel has inherited the land of promise once again and has brought all of the wealth that it accumulated over the years back into the land of Israel. Once again, they are the greatest people in the land. And I'll tell you real quickly, one guy I met in Israel, guy name is Gerard Schroeder. He's an author, he's a nuclear scientist, and he used to be one of the chief nuclear scientists on our nuclear program here in America. He was the one that developed many of these thermonuclear weapons. And guess what, he retired to Israel. And all of that knowledge in his head went over to Israel. And you wonder why they are so secure is because they have everything we have and they have it on steroids. If we send them F-16s, and this is the truth, they tear out all the avionics because our avionics are not nearly as good. Our airplanes are much better than they could develop, but their avionics far exceed what we have, and they put all their own stuff in there. So they have all of this power, and they have something, this is something that I've heard, I can't confirm it, but it's called the Samson option. If you remember, Samson was in the uh, temple of the Philistines, and he pushed on the columns, and it all fell down on him. They will never be taken out of that land again. They go up to the top of Masada, which was the last stronghold before the final dispersion of the Jews back in AD 70, and they take their vow to defend their nation from that spot, and they say never again. They will never be thrust from that land again. And if it looks like they're going to be, they can destroy every single nation around them. And all they want is peace. They just want to be left alone. The people just love life. I've been there. You go up on the Sea of Galilee, and there'll be Jewish girls singing and playing guitars and dancing and flowers and every. A window and they just want to be left alone they just want to have a place to call their home and we won't give it to them it says here so the Philistines envied him if you can't see the repetition in today's world either you are blind or I hate to say it you're probably an anti-semite the Palestinians the Jew haters of the land today bear the exact same name that they bore 4,000 years ago Philistine is just simply a transliteration of Palestinian they are shiftless they're wicked. I've been there. If you don't trust me, go over there and check it out for yourself. They're lustful. They're lustful stallions. And all they want to do is steal the blessings of God from the people of God. And as I say time and time and time again, Israel is only a microcosm of the world at large. The Geneva Bible says this about the final verse of today. The malicious always envy the graces of God in others. There are always going to be unions that want to extort from the owners. There are always going to be presidents that want to steal from those who produce. There are always going to be people with a liberal mindset that want to steal from people with a conservative mindset. I want to save, I'm going to take from what you have. And all the while, they fritter away what they have so that in the end, there's nothing left but more envy and more theft. What has been will be again, and that which has been done will be done again, and there is truly nothing new under the sun. Next week, we will continue down the rest of Genesis chapter 26, and I will show you, as I am confident, the parallels that will start happening with the Philistines are what is happening in Israel right now. We're going to see that, and we are going to also move into the future and do events which are coming soon to a tribulation period near you. Stand back and see God's amazing plan unfold even in our lifetime. Now, I tell you what, I haven't spoke much about Jesus today because the whole Bible points to Jesus, but sometimes one sermon is working towards an end goal, which will result in Jesus. Today, I, Jesus just didn't get introduced because the Jewish people have to be back in the land in order for Jesus to arrive in the land. Okay, the rapture is a separate, separate occurrence, and we're going to go see him. He's not coming to get us. He's going to meet us in the clouds. Jesus is going to return and physically stand on the land in Israel. But if you have never understood your need for Jesus Christ, 
because I haven't mentioned him during the sermon, I want to just explain very quickly in simple terms what he means to you so that if you have never accepted him as Lord and Savior, you will at least have the chance to think about it and hopefully call on him. The Bible says that all have sinned. Anybody here that denies that, that you have never sinned, I I simply cannot help you. We don't have to teach children to do wrong. You have a child, you know that they do wrong automatically. We have to teach them to do right. Every young little child has lied, and they know they lied, and they've lied about lying. And we all have sinned in one way or another. We've thought things we shouldn't think. And Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. Man, intent is sin. And I am intent continuously. I can't help it. I'm a human being. And we all are in this fallen state. The wages of sin is death. That means we die because of sin. That's just what happens. We get paid for our sin nature. If you go to work, you get a paycheck. That's your wage. A wage is something that you have earned. The wages of sin, the paycheck for sin is death. And the Bible goes on to say, but the gift of God, a gift is something you cannot earn. If I give you a Rolex watch and I say I'd like a dollar for it, it's not a gift. I got something for it. If I say, here, take this, I don't want anything for it, that becomes a gift. And then if you try to pay for a gift, you offend the giver. It says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all that God wants you to do is just one simple thing. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He wants you to call out and say, I can't save myself. I need what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law that I can never fulfill. He was born sinless and he lived sinless and he died sinless and therefore he came back to life. Why did he come back to life? He came back to life because the wages of sin is death. And if he didn't sin, then death cannot hold him. And now we can move positionally from Adam to Jesus Christ. And we can call on the name of the Lord and we can be sealed forever, forever in the graces of God because of what he did for us that we didn't deserve. Such is the nature of grace. And if you have never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, please do so today. You may pull out on the Midnight Pass Road and get whacked by a tourist, okay? It can happen. And that's your last breath and that's your last chance. Please, just just accept the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that all of this, all of this unfaithfulness points to his faithfulness in us. Next week, we're gonna have a sermon, Genesis 26, 15 through 35. It's entitled, That Which Has Been. I got a closing verse for you today as I do each week. It's from Zechariah 2, 5, and 6. This is speaking of the future from Zechariah's time, and it's speaking to the present in our time. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, meaning Israel in the land of the, the people of Israel. And I will be her, the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, which they've been doing for the past 50 or 80 years, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. And now he's called them back and he is a wall of fire around them. Three major battles, impossible odds, and they prevailed anyway. Great God, wonderful Savior. Got one more thing before communion today. It's a poem I do every single week based on the verses that we looked at. And this is called The Blessings of Abraham. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord said to him, don't move, stay where you are. Do not go down to Egypt as you intended to, rather live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land and I shall be with you and bless you also. For to you and your descendants, all these lands I give, I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, you know. 
I will make your descendants multiply in the land in which you live. They will be as the stars of heaven, a number that can't be guessed. And I will give to your descendants these lands so large. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge. And he kept my commandments, statutes and laws. He was upright, upright before me, walking without any flaws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar and the men asked about his wife. And he said, she's my sister because he feared for his life. Lest they kill me for Rebekah, who is beautiful to behold. She is a pearl and a treasure more precious than fine gold. Now it came to pass after a long time that Abraham, the Philistine king, looked through a window and saw Isaac sporting with Rebekah, the lady so sublime, and realized that what Isaac had said really wasn't so. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister instead? Isaac responded, I feared for my life. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt where there was none. And then it would have been the end of that person's life. So Abimelech charged all his people and said, he who touches this man or his wife, there will be no mercy for that person. Instead, it will be death for him, the ending of his life. Then Isaac sowed in that land and his crop was magnificently grand. He reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him just as he was told. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Much increase he did bring. For he had possessions of flocks and of herds also, a great number of servants he had as well. So the Philistines envied him, just as you know. And their jealousy is a sad, sad story to tell. All of these things are written in the book to show us of things to come surely and without a doubt. So open your Bible daily and be sure to take a look. God's plan is revealed to those who seek him out. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful word and for your faithfulness to your people. Praises belong to you, our great and precious Lord. Let your praises ring from under every church steeple. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so very much for the wonderful blessings of Jesus Christ. And thank you for your faithfulness to your unfaithful people, both in the church and in Israel. And thank you for how you've called them back to yourself and how you're preparing them for the return of our dear Lord. And may that day be soon. Please bless each person here in the uh, week ahead and take good care of them and bring them safely to wherever they meet to worship again next Sunday. And uh, may our uh, Lord's Supper, our communion, bring you glory this afternoon before we leave. And uh, may your praise just sing from our lips each and every moment as we go throughout the day. Thank you for the flower, Lord. Thank you for that fluffy white cloud. Thank you for my puppy. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my children. Thank you for whatever comes our way that we will be responsible with the gifts you've given to us by returning praise to you. How great you are. How glorious you are. How wonderful you are. In Jesus' name, we praise you. Amen.